You're listening to a live recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week one. Today's teaching is the introduction to our study on the first half of Exodus, chapters 1 through 15. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. My name is Christy Hess. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Welcome to each and every one of you. It's good to see your faces. Um, I serve as one of the co-directors of WBF. It's what we call Women's Bible Fellowship, if you're new here. But this semester, I get to do one of my favorite jobs, and that is to be here teaching the Word of God with you. So I'll be sharing that responsibility with Chris and Julie. There'll be three of us, Lord willing, that you'll be hearing from this semester. So you'll meet Chris and Julie in coming weeks. Um, But there has actually been an entire team of women studying and writing and working together to create this study. So we are so excited to share this with you today. If you need a place to take notes this morning, there is a spot on page 7 in your workbook. So I am a true introvert. How many of those do we have in the room? Show of hands. Wow, there's not as many as I thought. Okay, so a few of you will be able to um, identify with me here. Um, Initially, the shutdown last March was like a huge exhale for me, right? So I'm like, an empty calendar? Okay. I get to wear sweatpants every day? Okay. And I finally had time to uh, try my hand at making bagels, like jump on the baking bandwagon like everyone else did. Um, They turned out great, by the way. It was good. Um, But you know what? I learned that even my introverted self had a limit on isolation. And it kind of surprised me, honestly. The thing I missed most deeply was being able to gather with other believers. Technology is helpful, but it can never replace the ability to be with one another, the physical presence in each other's lives. Those of you who have long-distance loved ones, you already know this but it took a pandemic for the rest of us to figure it out. I remember at the beginning we were all like, thank you Lord for this technology. And now we're like, no more Zoom calls, please. I'm just done with that. (laughs) Uh, All I can say is I just count it such a gift to be able to gather here today, okay? Masks or no mask, we're here. And it's just such a blessing. Um, If you're listening at home, Just know that we feel your absence. We anticipate the day when these health risks will no longer hinder our community. This is one of our core values at WBF, to enjoy and participate in the community we have as sisters in Christ. What a tremendous gift we have in the family of God. We so often take it for granted. But there are just generation after generation of women coming alongside of each other, learning together, growing together, sharpening one another to the praise of his glory. We're here. That's what we're about here. Additionally, we desire for WBF to be a place where you grow in your knowledge of God and your love for him through the study of his word. God has revealed himself to us on the pages of the Bible. And the more we come to know him rightly, the more our affection is stirred for him. And we come to desire him above all else. It's truly difficult to love someone that you don't really know well. We understand that on a human level. But for some reason, when it comes to God, we're just a little bit disconnected on that. 
And so we press in to know him. Scripture is clear that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I know that all sounds well and good, but there's this critical link in the middle between picking up your Bible and being transformed by it. And that is, what do we do with it? And if you've ever asked yourself that question, you're in the right place. We view WBF as a training grounds. This is not just a social gathering or a place to come and be inspired. We want to be intentionally equipping you to be in God's word for yourself. That means we're going to offer you study tools and a place to practice. We're going to offer you sound teaching and also a place to process around the table. It's worth the time and it's worth the effort because you know what's to gain on the other side of all this? It's God himself. We're not just trying to get all the right answers. We seek him as the ultimate treasure in his word. That is what we're after, and everything that we do here is to that end. One of the most foundational truths we need to recognize about the Bible, this might sound obvious, but that first and foremost, it's a book about God. Now, the reason I say that is because we can get that a little mixed up. I also teach third grade Sunday school here at church, and I always start out the year and ask them, okay, guys, who's the main character of the Bible? And they all look up at me, God, or Jesus. And I'm like, yes, great answer. It's like always the safe answer in Sunday school, right? But they're right. And then I go on to explain to them, so the stories that we're learning about, they're going to show us what God is like. He doesn't just tell us, he shows us. So we're going to use our detective skills to look for clues about God. He wants us to know him, so let's hunt for him. Now, I will leave the detective analogy aside for the children. We're not going to continue in that, okay? But we need the same understanding as adults. We may verbally agree, oh, of course the Bible's about God. But in practice, we can sometimes inadvertently place ourselves in the center. It is of utmost importance that we train or perhaps retrain ourselves to seek God first when we come to the text. And this is actually quite unnatural. Even after we come to faith, we still battle the self-centeredness of our sinful nature. I mean, I don't think that's just me. We are wired to serve ourselves. Culture surely doesn't do us any favors either. You are being constantly bombarded with messages to program you to create a life that serves you and your needs on your terms. When you're looking for it, it's everywhere. Those motivational Pinterest quotes form our thoughts, they start to form our patterns. What ends up happening is we come to the Word and we say, okay, God, I've got 10 minutes, so let's go. Let's make this count. Here we go. And even if we don't say that, what we're actually after is just this quick shot of inspiration to launch us into our day. What is the Word for me? Now, 
here's the caveat, okay? We must come to God in our lack for his sustenance, okay? The word must intersect our everyday lives or it's not going to transform us. These things are good and right. But paradoxically, the most sustaining thing is actually when we're refocused on him, when we understand who he is, and then we live out of that truth, and we live in light of that, instead of just looking to receive something in a little soundbite. Not to mention, if you are looking for things that are immediately applicable to your day, there are huge portions of the Bible that just aren't going to work for you. So what does this look like in real life? Funny you should ask. The Lord in his infinite kindness had me practice this the day that I was beginning to prepare this teaching. All right, so my Bible reading plan had me in Leviticus 13. That's right, I said Leviticus. It's where all Bible reading plans die a slow death. Anyway, this particular chapter is God educating Moses and Aaron on infectious skin diseases. Have you read this one? Okay, it, but it's essentially so the priest can act as the doctor for the, for the people, and he knows how to treat them. So I'm reading these gruesome descriptions of like oozing rashes and the colors that the hair turns in the wound. Like, I'm not kidding. You go check it out, okay? Maybe after, okay, lunchtime is going to interfere with that. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is pretty gross. Like, I'm not sure what to do with this. I, in all seriousness, I do understand why Leviticus is hard to get through. It's okay. <laughs> but now, this is, this is the point. If, if the only point of Scripture is to teach me how to live or to motivate me for obedience, uh, what am I supposed to do with Leviticus 13? Seems I'd be better off just letting it sit. I don't need to read this. But if every page of the Bible somehow serves to reveal God to me, that's going to change how I interact with this chapter. So instead of thinking, well, that was a waste of time. I sure don't feel motivated for my day. Instead, I'm asking, okay, God, <laughs> this is weird, but help me to see you. Like, show me your heart. What's going on here? So in an attempt to reorient myself, I say, okay, where are we at in the story? How does this display God's character? Well, it turns out that Leviticus 13 is much more than just a medical textbook. I saw it as God's kindness to literally educate his people on infectious diseases so that they wouldn't all die, so that he could continue his plan of redemption through them. I mean, that is grace. The surrounding nations didn't have that information. They're trying to figure it out by trial and error. But God is explaining this to them for their preservation. Additionally, Isaiah 53, 4 came to mind. You know this passage. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. One day, Christ would come as the true and better high priest, and he would be willing to touch the leper. He would be able to heal. And ultimately, he would pay the price 
for our sin-sick race. He was sent outside the camp to die so that the leper could again be purified and brought near to the presence of God once more. And isn't that beautiful? But it's so unnatural. We don't naturally think like this. So it takes effort and discipline to train ourselves to seek and savor him instead of just looking for that quick energy shot to go. Friends, we want to help you to this end. We choose and write content here at WBF with these goals in mind. How can we help you? How can we help reorient you? How can we help you dig in and find the intended meaning of this passage? Now, there are a host of ways you can interact with the scriptures. In fact, we encourage you not to just settle into one way. There is a great benefit to reading the scriptures quickly and broadly, so you get the, the whole picture, right? The scope of what God has been up to, as well as slowly and deeply, just sitting in it. This study takes the latter approach. We're going to dig in this semester. So as you'll soon see, the framework of your Exodus workbook is built on a study called the, or a process called the inductive study process. There is nothing magical about this process. We have simply find, found it to be helpful and effective at getting our priorities straight when we're in the Word. The inductive study method can be boiled down to three steps. By the way, I'm telling you this so you understand why, okay, as you begin your homework. The first step is observation. This is when we are reading it slowly, we're reading it repetitively, we're reading for detail. It's kind of like reading comprehension in grade school. Like, did you actually understand what you just read or did you just breeze through it? This is also the step where we're going to intentionally look for the character of God. The second step is interpretation. This is where we start digging a little deeper. Let's start asking questions. What does this actually mean? Why did they say it this way? How does this connect to the rest of the Bible? And third is application. This is the one we're super familiar with. This is identifying how the truths from the passage intersect our everyday lives. Now notice where application falls. I just explained to you the scenario how we go for it first. We're going to put application at the end. And I think you'll come to agree that the application is so much richer when it is built on the character of God and on the intended meaning of the passage. It's going to bring new dimension to what this means for you. Just as there are many ways to handle the scriptures faithfully, so there are also a lot of good ways to make a cup of coffee. But you know what all those methods have in common? It's that they're less convenient than pushing the go button on the Keurig. Okay, if you love your Keurig, just live in it, okay? But let me explain what I'm talking about. Okay, my husband is a self-taught coffee connoisseur. That's saying it nicely. Making a cup of coffee is no small feat in our house, okay? So to begin with, he'll weigh out the coffee beans he needs just for one cup. And then they must be ground fresh 
I'm talking like within minutes of brewing and to a particular coarseness. So this literally means that his high-tech grinder like screams into our quiet house at like 5.30 every morning. And at first I was like, what are you doing? Like, take it to the garage. You're going to wake the kids up. And they don't wake up. Like, I don't know. I think it's just part of their subconsciousness. But anyways, so while he's preparing the grounds, the water is heating up in an electric kettle, and it has to be a specific temperature, okay? So once everything's ready, he pours the grounds into this little device called a pour-over. Are you familiar with these? This is our favorite method. So it's this little glass cone-shaped thing, and it sits on top of your mug. So he puts the grounds in there. And then that whole contraption gets sat on a scale. And then you take your water, and he pours it over the grounds at particular motion, a particular rate. All the while, he's watching the scale to make sure he knows when he's used the appropriate weight of water. OK? <laughs> I know. Thank you for loving us as we are. OK, I know this sounds a little crazy. But I've got to admit something to you. He's completely converted me. I used to be like, that's nice for you, but I'm going to push a button. But he has finally convinced me that the time and the effort is worth the end result. In fact, I now thoroughly enjoy the process, too. We don't even own a traditional coffee maker anymore. So here at WBF, we want you to be so convinced that the Lord is worth pursuing, he's worth the time, he's worth the effort, that you throw away your Keurig, so to speak. Okay? You won't be convinced of this until you taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good and beautiful and worthy. But that's often going to mean choosing the way that's less convenient. Do you hear me? That's going to mean coming back to his word again and again, even when you don't feel like it. I wasn't won over to handcrafted coffee with one cup. I was like, no way. Not doing all that. It took a lot of repeated exposure to convince me. But you know what? I'm never going back. I'm never going back. We are with you in this. You are not alone if you struggle or are frustrated to engage God's word. We just came through a new year, right? And everybody's resolution list. Got to be in the Bible more. We're here to help you. We know this isn't easy. It is our privilege and responsibility to link arms with you and commit to pursuing the Lord together. That way, when you stumble, and you will, you have a sister on the other side of you that's going to pick you up, and we're going to keep walking. I do trust that the Lord has great things in store for us over the next few weeks. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to this study. Welcome to Exodus. Just a few things we're going to point out at the beginning of the workbook. If you will turn to page two, the very beginning. This is a summary of the inductive study method. 
Okay, time does not allow me to stand up here and unpack all the whys behind why we chose this, why it's valuable. Um, but this gives a little more explanation uh, to what I said here this morning. So it would be good to read over this before you start into your homework. And now we've incorporated two specific features into this study to help us um, remember to seek God first. So the first is simply going to be a reminder at the beginning of your homework to look for the character of God. Sometimes it's right in front of you in black and white. Sometimes you have, it's inferred. You have to think about it. But we're going to have a reminder there to look for that as you read. So on pages three and four in your workbook, there is a back to this here. We have a list of God's attributes with just short definitions. So use this to help get your mind rolling if you're stuck, okay? The second thing is a prayer prompt, which you'll see at the beginning of each homework section. So don't just breeze right past this. We want you to actually pray before you begin your study. We could do everything right, but if we do not rely on the Spirit to illuminate the Word for us, we're going to fall short. Page five is a beautiful uh, artwork of the whole story of Scripture. So we will come back to that at the end. And if you flip over that page to page six, you'll see a map. We're going to use this throughout the study. Your homework will point you back to it. So this is where it's at when you come to those, um, come to those parts. All right. Uh, your homework, I don't know if you looked through it yet or not, but your homework is not broken out into days. Now, I know this is really going to throw some of you for a loop. I get it. I'm a type A. I'm like, give me my days. Just tell me what to do. All the type Bs are like, finally, some freedom. Okay, so this is the point. This story is narrative, okay? So if we were to take this section and break it up into five or six little pieces for days, it just felt really choppy. So what we did instead was use just a larger section. So each week there's two larger sections of text and corresponding homework. I think there's one week where there's three. But you're going to be looking at a longer passage and then going back through it so that we don't lose the storyline, pretty much. And hopefully this will just be flexible with your schedule because some days we just have more time to sit in the Word than others. So you can do this at your own pace and whatever works for you. As you will see right away, we're just literally taking you by the hand and we're going to guide you through these steps. You're not out on your own. Observation, interpretation, and application. And the very same tools and skills that you encounter in this study are the very same ones that you can use when you're studying the Bible on your own. One of the tools you'll find in observation is a step that we ask you to mark or color certain things in the text as you read. I know some people love this and some people are like, oh. This is the point. It helps us read for detail, okay? It slows you down. The church was kind enough to provide you with these beautiful scripture journals, which I'm sure that you have seen. Take one. This comes with your registration, so you get a workbook and a scripture journal. These are awesome. We just love these. Um, the text is printed on one side, and then the other side is completely blank. So when we um, ask you to mark up something, 
use this, all right? That way you don't have to be so nervous about messing up your real Bible, okay? So just make this your own. Mark up the text, write whatever you want, and then the blank page on the other side is free choice. You get to decide what you want to do with it, okay? You can write questions or notes, um, anything else that comes to your mind as you're working through it. Um, yeah, just really make that your own. These journals are printed in the ESV version. Um, the NIV just doesn't make these yet, so we're using the ESV version this semester um, because that's what you'll be working in and everyone will be on the same page then. And spoiler alert, we're only studying Exodus 1 through 15. This semester we're breaking it up into two pieces. So hang on to your journal, come back next January, and we're going to finish it out together, okay? So we'll use that for the whole stretch of these studies. Lastly, there is one rule for this study. You may not read commentary, okay? Do not take in any commentary until after you've heard the teaching for the week. Do you know what I mean by this? So I think we often think of commentaries as being the big fat books that pastors use to write a sermon. But really, commentary is just anything that another human being has written that tries to help explain scripture. So this could be articles you find online. We don't think of that as commentary, but it is. If they're writing on a specific passage, that's commentary. A sermon is commentary. It's hopefully good commentary, but it's commentary. Uh, podcast. Okay, these are the sort of things um, that we just want to take in but we want you to just wait. One of the biggest places that you're going to run into this is if you have a study Bible that you use regularly, the notes at the bottom of the page are commentary. But if, if you use this, then you won't have to cheat, okay? There's no notes in here. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not actually cheating. Well, I mean, kind of. But uh, the reason it, for this rule is we want to push back against that reflex to just find a quick answer, Okay? Part of studying is thinking about these things for yourself and not just jumping to someone else's conclusion. There's a lot of really helpful commentary, but if we rush to it, we're never going to learn these things for ourselves. We don't like not knowing the answer. The kids are a lot better at this than we are. We are very unconditioned to this feeling of like, oh, I don't know, I feel insecure, I don't want to go to a table discussion like this. But this is the thing, it, it's actually, like any teacher will tell you, it's a critical part of learning, that you experience that dissonance of like, I don't understand this. And we want you to wrestle through it for yourself. If you wrestle through something for yourself, it's going to be so much more cemented in your heart and your mind than if you just read someone else's thoughts and move on. So set aside the commentaries until after you come here, talk about it with your group, and hear the teaching, and then you may go, okay? Then you can have at it. But we just want to pause, just slow ourselves down and think for ourselves. Okay, there's always so much groundwork to lay this first week, but I do think we're ready to talk about Exodus now. So if you're not already there, let's go back to page seven in your workbook. So anytime that we set out to study a book of the Bible, we want to answer some preliminary questions. We've listed a few of these at the top of the page for you. The context of the scripture matters. If you were studying a piece of historical literature, 
like say like Shakespeare, okay? You would logically start by identifying the author, figuring out what he was like, and then, okay, well, who's he writing to? What are the people like that are reading this? What's going on in the world? Okay, this is just like due diligence. Well, as students of the Word of God, we also want to be diligent in how we handle it. So we're going to, we're going to ask ourselves these questions, identifying the author, the audience, and the context, because it's going to help inform our interpretation as we begin to try to unpack and understand. These are critical parts of that. Now, I have noticed that oftentimes teachers won't tell you where to find this information, and I'm not sure why, because it shouldn't be a secret, but they just stand up here and they're like, Exodus was written blah, 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 and the date was blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you this morning, so the cat's out of the bag. My favorite place to find this information is actually a study Bible, after I just totally dissed them a minute ago. Um, the, the introductions to each book in a study Bible do a really great job of laying this out in a way that's simple. You don't have to hunt. It's just right there. That's my favorite place to go. I usually check a couple other resources, but this is, that gives you what you need as you're beginning a new study. Okay, so first of all, this is not at the top of your page, but the name Exodus means a going out or a departure. Obviously, it sounds just like the word exit. And this is the, the overarching narrative of the book. We're going to see Israel come up and out of Egypt. And who wrote Exodus? Exodus was written by Moses. The first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, are attributed to Moses' authorship. Second, to whom was it written? The original audience was the people of Israel. And the question as to when it was written. Okay, hold on with your pens. I'm going to give you a range, okay? So it's typically thought to have been written between the 15th to 13th centuries BC. If you are a history person and you want me to be more precise, that is 1446 to 1260 BC. Now, this is a really big range. The fact of the matter is, you can find convincing proofs for an earlier writing of Exodus. You can find convincing proofs for a later writing of Exodus. And some people feel very strongly about this, and that's okay. But we're not going to get down in the weeds here now about this. So I'm just going to present to you this range. If you're a history buff and that's interesting to you, you go ahead and dig in. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting content there. There are many variables that make Exodus hard to date. But one of the main reasons that makes a lot of sense to me is that the pharaoh is not named. So pharaoh is a general term for the Egyptian king. And we're not 100% sure which pharaoh was on the throne when all this was happening. So it just kind of gives it a little ambiguity to know where to plug this into Egyptian history. Also, Egyptian history is not very helpful because they weren't super detailed about this massive national defeat at the hand of Israel's God, understandably. So there's not a lot we can glean from other historical writings from them. The main point is this, and this is what I love. Okay, bring it back to the heart. We do know where it's nestled in the chronology of God's redemptive story. And that is all we really need to know to find his heart in this historical account. 
So it's traditionally believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, in the wilderness years. So after they came out of Egypt and before they went into the Promised Land. And when you consider that context about what the people were about to face, going in and doing battle against all these enemies, then we can see it for what it is. It's just the grace of God to give them a framework He gave them a history of of the world. He gave them a history of their people through Moses' writings. And this also gave them framework for knowing who they are, an identity, and their purpose going forward. Now, the genre, or which simply means the style of the literature. Exodus is categorized as historical narrative. Historical narrative is selective, doesn't tell us what these guys were wearing, and it's purposeful, okay? It proves a point. So biblical historical narrative is meant to display the Lord. That's what we're seeing here, who he is and what he's doing on behalf of mankind. And even though we call this historical narrative, Exodus is actually a very unique book because it also contains some poetry and some law, so it ends up being a bit of a mashup but for all practical purposes, um, historical narrative. Now, a little background on the nation of Egypt, just to set the stage. Um, Egypt had a very rich and distinct culture. I bet we could all immediately conjure up mental images of ancient Egypt, just from film and, you know, school, things we've seen. They were highly developed. Egypt was the center of prosperity and education at the time. They were also highly religious. They practiced polytheism, which means many gods. They had, yeah, countless gods that they worshiped and tried to appease. This obviously stood in direct contrast to monotheism, which means one god. That would be um, what the Israelites, their worship of one god, us as Christians, one god. Egypt had a desert climate, very little rainfall, except for the Nile Delta and River Valley. That area was extremely lush and fertile. So obviously it would follow. The Nile River was like the lifeblood of this region. They used it for everything you'd naturally think of, like drinking, bathing, irrigation, um, but also for commerce and travel. There's a lot of in and out of this country. Um, So this just contributed to their level of advancement. So due to how highly developed they were and due to the just abundant resource that was the Nile River, Egypt was just a haven of provision when famine would strike the area, which, as we'll see, is exactly how Israel ended up there in the first place. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of context as you begin to study. We're going to dig deep into these first 15 chapters of Exodus. But I'd like to conclude our time this morning by just panning back out. No book of the Bible is ever meant to be studied in a vacuum. Okay, they're all intricately connected to piece together this greater narrative from Genesis to Revelation. 
We never want to lose sight of that when we get down in the details like we're going to do. So I'm going to tell you this ancient gospel story again. And may we never grow tired of hearing it. If you want a visual, you can follow along at that artwork on page five. Or you can just listen. Before the beginning, God was. Father, Son, and Spirit. They existed in perfect fellowship, lacking nothing. Yet God chose to create the world as an extension of his glory and communion. As the crowning touch, God made man and woman in his own image. He gave them the honor and the responsibility to act as his representatives in creation, ruling and filling the world for his glory. Eden was the first taste of life in the kingdom of God. God's people in a glorious place with the very presence of God himself. But Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan, that God might not be fully trustworthy and good. They'd be better off calling their own shots instead of submitting to him. By eating the forbidden fruit, they stepped out from under God's lordship, and they chose to instead be their own sovereign authority. This rejection of God and his design broke his very good world. Sin severed human relationship with God, with one another, and with the created world. They were exiled from the garden kingdom, but even more tragically, from the favorable presence of God himself. Yet immediately following their rebellion, God mercifully promised deliverance from their self-induced bondage. One day, a deliverer would come. Sin proved to be a toxic cancer in the human nature. What began with the murder of a brother spiraled downward through the flood and ultimately to the Tower of Babel. Mankind continued to reject the sovereign kingship of God, acting according to their own definitions of good and evil. When all seemed lost, God did a new thing. In raising up Abram as the father of his chosen people, he covenanted to give him a family and a promised land and to bless the whole world through him. Abraham died in faith, not receiving all that was promised. Yet his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God reiterated his covenant promises to Isaac and then to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. God preserved his chosen people despite the vengeful actions of Jacob's sons against one of their own. Destined to starve in the famine, Israel found refuge in Egypt through God's providential placement of Joseph. Yet eventually, the Egyptians enslaved this massive people group in an attempt to control them. God remembered his covenant, however, and he raised up a deliverer 
to bring his people up and out of bondage. This is the part of the story we'll be entering into this semester. But notice where it's situated in the grand arc of the redemptive history. It's very much at the beginning. Second book of your Bible. God obviously did not just free his people for the sake of freedom, but that he might make good on his promises and establish his kingdom among man. After a long stretch of wilderness wanderings and the conquest of Canaan, God finally settled his people into a homeland. He had given them his law, a picture of his character, inviting them into relationship with himself, and then commissioning them again to act as his representatives in the world. Yet all through the eras of the judges and the kings, Israel continued to break covenant by worshiping false gods and living outside of God's design. Even at the highest point in Israel's history, when a good king was on the throne and God's presence filled the temple, there was still a veil of separation between God and people. This was not the garden kingdom of Eden. Prophet after prophet warned Israel of the consequences for their unfaithfulness, but it had been proven Sinful mankind was incapable of meeting God's holy requirements. So God allowed enemy nations to bring his wrath upon his own people. Their beloved promised land was taken. They themselves became prisoners of war. And God's glorious earthly temple desecrated and destroyed. All had been lost. The kingdom was in ruins. Even as some trickled back home after the exile, nothing was ever the same. But as the centuries quietly ticked by, God remained faithful. When the fullness of time had come, he unveiled the mystery of his glorious grace, kept hidden since the foundations of the earth. His very own son, took on human skin. The creator entered creation, vulnerable and virtually undetected. This God-man came to live the sinless life that we could not live and to absorb the wrath of God that we could not bear. His death on the cross paid the insurmountable price for our sins against a holy God. And that veil in the rebuilt temple was torn from top to bottom as he breathed his last. God had provided a way for a sinful people to once again be welcomed into his presence through the atoning blood of his son. But death didn't have the final word. On the third day, the God-man rose from the grave, defeating death forever. Deliverance had come. The kingdom had come. His earthly work now complete, he returned to the Father's right hand in heaven. But God did not abandon his people. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all who would entrust themselves to the Son by faith. 
And so his presence persists within and among us, advancing his kingdom, which the sun set in motion so many years ago. The Spirit is a wonderful, wonderful gift, but he is only a down payment of the glorious inheritance that awaits the saints in Christ Jesus. We live here and now in a paradox of physical and spiritual reality, empowered and on mission to carry out his kingdom purposes, yet all the while aching with this sinful body, longing for Christ's return. This time, he will come not as a humble servant, but as King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who reject him shall be cast away to eternal punishment, suffering the wrath due them for their sin. But those who call him Savior and Lord will be invited into the glorious presence of God, a new heaven and a new earth, the kingdom fulfilled. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so, friends, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For he who promised is faithful, and he will do it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, Would you just forgive us for making you small? We are so easily bogged down and burdened, and rightfully so, but we just confess our need to be reoriented. I just pray um, for each woman in this room that you would just use this time in your word, this time in Exodus, to reveal yourself in a new and fresh way that we would come to a deeper understanding of who you are and that we would love you, we would hunger for more of you. Father, we desire to be made more and more into your image. So Spirit, will you apply the word to our hearts to that end. We commit our time to you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.